0: This will give you the opportunity to either, A, turn off your cell phone, B, scurry in through the back door real quick while nobody's looking, uh, confess any known sins to God so you can make sure that you are in fellowship and ready to study the Word, and be prepared to focus and concentrate, because he who doesn't concentrate tonight will truly be lost, not in a soteriological sense, but just in an existential sense or a cognitive sense. So let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Well, Father, we're truly thankful that we have your word because, as the psalmist said, it is a lamp unto our feet a light into our path, and as we look at the light of your word, we come to understand not just the specifics in terms of how we should think, both in terms of mandates and prohibitions, but we also have examples that help us to understand how to engage an unbelieving world on the basis of the gospel. And it is not always easy to do that, yet we have been mandated to be witnesses to The truth of your word and to our savior who died on the cross for our sins and was buried and rose on the from the grave on the third day and that often in the process of trying to communicate the gospel we feel uncertain and yet we should have the confidence that ultimately it is god the holy spirit who is at work and it is our job to make sure we know the word as well as we can and to understand the issues as clearly as we can and communicate them as uh, precisely as we can, knowing that no matter what our uh, foul-ups may be, God the Holy Spirit is greater than our foul and can make the gospel crystal clear to those even when we have just muddied the waters. So, Father, help us to understand from our example this evening principles we need to apply, that we can become more effective witnesses for you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in... Acts. This isn't Tuesday night; it's Thursday night. We're in Romans, but tonight we're in Acts, and we're looking at application of Romans chapter one, uh, verses eighteen to eighteen. Actually, uh, Romans one eighteen to twenty three. Romans one eighteen to twenty three, because it is in those passages that we come to understand some things about the nature of every human being, and that and what Paul. It, emphasizes there is that everybody, no exception, no matter how much they protest, no matter how many international bestsellers Christopher Hitchens publishes that there is no God, he knows in his dark, depraved, wicked little heart that God exists. And so does every other unbeliever. And so we don't really have to prove to them that God exists. That we covered that when I went through the arguments for the existence of God. And that often these proofs for the existence of God, as I covered before, are really address the knowledge of God as if the problem is an intellectual one, as if the problem is an evidential one. They just don't have enough evidence. So somehow I have to construct a logical argument to convince... Jose unbeliever, that God exists. And what God, what Scripture says is that he already knows that God exists. And so often what happens is that we fail, we, we, we unwittingly compromise our own position by acting as if the problem's an intellectual one or an evidential one, and the problem is a volitional and spiritual one. They have suppressed the truth In unrighteousness, they've rejected the truth. It's not that they don't know it. It's not that it's not clear. It's not that there's not enough evidence. It's that they have made a a a decision to reject the authority of God, at God's consciousness, or consistently from God consciousness. And so, Paul tells us that everyone knows that that God exists. That knowledge is within them because they're created in the image of God. And the heavens and the earth declare that. Psalm 19, connected back to Romans 1, 18 and 19, uh, demonstrates that there is this nonverbal uh, evidence, this nonverbal witness, this nonverbal voice that just screams at every human being from every cell and molecule of God's creation that God exists. And they just turn the volume down. And so in witnessing... What we're doing is we're turning the volume up a little bit. And so the question becomes really a methodological question. And it's not so much an issue of do we or do we not use evidences. And I've addressed this last week and some on Sunday morning. It's how we use those evidences. Do we appeal to those evidences they, if they exist in independence of God's word in other words, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ something that we look at just as an independent, autonomous fact of history, or does it gain its meaning as a fact in history because God says, tells us what it means? I use that illustration on Sunday morning of a father taking his son to, young son to a Super Bowl game. And the young son really doesn't understand anything about, about football and doesn't understand the, the nuances of the strategy within football. And as, as I, I think I used the illustration of the, of the Houston Texans and the Washington Redskins, and at the last minute with the Houston Texans up by one, that's so everybody knows it's a story, uh, Washington fumbles the ball. Everybody stands up and cheers, all the fans from Houston scream and shout and get delirious and pour champagne all over everybody, and the little boy just doesn't understand it because he doesn't comprehend the significance of the fact or what we call the meaning of the fact, and facts don't exist without meaning. So for him, he's already assigned a meaning to this fact. It's inconsequential, but everybody else is automatically assigned a meaning to it. So if you start with the wrong meaning assigned to a fact no facts exist without some framework of interpretation then part of our job in witnessing by application is we've got to sort of on the one hand in some some sense depending on the circumstances the conversation etc expose the false interpretation assigned to the fact and provide evidence for the true interpretation we do that in a way that does not compromise our fundamental assumptions that facts are what they are because God says, tells us what they are, not because independent reason, independent logic, independent empiricism somehow identifies that fact. So we're at, at the very core of all this are all kinds of, you know, very sophisticated things going on in relation to language and meaning and the authority of God and the fact that there, we, we all operate within a natural world but yet we as believers know that it's more than just a natural world, that there is a spiritual realm or supernatural realm, and that things are what God says they are. They aren't what this unbeliever thinks that they are or what other people may, whatever meaning they may assign to it. So we can have great confidence knowing that um, that the real issue is volitional and spiritual and it's not Intellect or education or IQ or a lack of evidence or any of these other things which people just throw up as, uh, as smoke screens and so when we look at the um, the evidence is as I pointed out when we went through that uh, it's really that's really just an appeal sort of to philosophy rather than using the relying upon the authority the independent authority of scripture. And so from there, I wanted to just go to some passages, some examples within Paul's ministry and Peter's ministry. I sort of kind of went through Acts last time from the beginning, showing how they uh, explained the gospel in different ways to different audiences. And that's something we need to understand. It's not just sort of one size fits all. We don't go out and say, well, I have the four spiritual laws or a little tract on uh, happy, uh, and meaningful, how to have a happy and meaningful life or... All these tools are great, but the the methodology of explaining the gospel to people isn't a one-size-fits-all. People come from all kinds of different backgrounds and problems and experiences and methodologies. Some people have never heard the gospel. Some people have heard the gospel 20 times, and you're just going to be the last one to explain it to them, and they're finally going to get it and believe it, and most of us are somewhere in between. So, how do we have these conversations with unbelievers in a way that doesn 't compromise our, uh, our our belief in the authority of god 's word and that God is the one who de- determines and defines the meaning of history, the meaning of experience, the meaning of facts uh, uh, facts, the meaning of of um, words, the meaning of reason, all of these things are part of our conversation with unbelievers. And so that's what witnessing really is, is just having conversations with un- with someone who doesn't believe what we believe and trying to, on the one hand, expose that unbelief for what it is, and on the other hand, give them the message of real hope and and confidence. So we went through basic conclusions from Romans 1. First of all, that what we learn here is all men are inherently religious. There's no such thing as a secular, non-religious person. They just think they are. But secular humanism was even recognized by the U.S. Supreme Court to be a religious position. If the statement there is a God is religious, then the statement there is no God must also be religious. You cannot escape it. Everything ultimately is religious. And people worship something. They worship themselves. They worship their own intellect. They worship money. They worship success. They worship science. They worship the independence of man from religion. But they all worship something. Second, we learn that all men are in rebellion against the creator God by virtue of sin. And thus they will always generate some substitute God. And so sometimes even somebody who believes in the Bible to some degree, has really sort of invented their own view of God. It's not really the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not really the creator God who created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them. They have, they have massaged that God away so that they can have a God with, to whom they can feel somewhat comfortable but they're still in violation of God's standard. Third, that God created all men with an internal knowledge of his existence, and his external witness within creation is sufficient so that everybody can be held accountable for knowing that God exists. Fourth, we saw that the ultimate issue in life is not intellectual, it's not education, it's not social, it's not even family. It is a moral decision, it's a spiritual issue. And everybody reaches God consciousness, and then perhaps they reject God in negative volition or want to know more about God in positive volition. And then fifth, I pointed out that there are some people who've already understood the creator God. For example, when Peter's communicating to Jewish audiences, he we saw last time, or to Gentiles, uh, like Cornelius, who have already understood who God is, the starting point for the gospel is Genesis 12, not Genesis 1. But what we saw with Paul is that when he starts talking to pagan unbelievers with no frame of reference whatsoever for the Old Testament, then when you say the word God to some unbelievers... What they bring to the meaning of the word God is a whole lot of baggage that has nothing to do with what you're trying to communicate. And if you don't get that settled up front as to who God is so that you can explain righteousness and justice and divine love, then you're you're talking uh, around the other person and he's talking around you because you haven't defined the concept of God. And we all know that that uh, a lot of uh, disagreements and misunderstandings can just be resolved by having really crisp, clear definitions. So the issue we're talking about is how do you communicate as a believer committed to the authority of Scripture, how do you communicate to a believer who's committed to unbelief? Where's the common ground? And what what Paul is demonstrating is the common ground is Scripture, and what we see in, um, I didn't point this out last time, but you, what you see in Acts 14 and Acts 17 isn't necessarily that Paul is coming to these unbelievers quoting chapter and verse, but that everything that he is saying is based on Scripture. So he's paraphrasing or summarizing, but he's not necessarily coming in and quoting uh, Genesis 3.15 or Isaiah 9.6 or some other verse to make his point. Uh, nevertheless, he's still making scriptural points from the Old Testament. So the two chapters we've looked at, Acts 14, when Paul was in Lystra, which is the right circle, on his first missionary journey. And now we are looking going to look tonight at Acts chapter 17 in relationship to uh, Paul's message at Mars Hill, otherwise known as the Areopagus, at, uh, in Acts chapter 17. So uh, just a little summary. We saw last time that when Paul communicates to these unbelievers, he demonstrates that he has a very well-educated and informed view of what they believe. He knows his audience, and just like the time honored principle going back to uh, Sun Tzu that when you 're in a warfare you need to know your enemy so we just uh, that same principle applies within uh, evangelism within witnessing is that you ask and the best way to know your enemy and they 're not really an enemy but to know what the, per- the about the person you're're you're, talking to is to understand something about your culture. That's why when a missionary is going to go someplace, for example, like uh, Jim Myers, when he first went over to Ukraine, or others who've gone to places like India, Thailand, Africa, wherever it might be, is to study the culture and the target audience so that you have some idea of how they think and what the vocabulary issues are. I remember when when uh, these the guys who initially went over to Belarus and then Jim went from there down to Kiev were facing translation issues. And you look, they had a, uh, they were talking to a Russian audience, they had the Russian synodal text, which uh, was translated almost as uh, long ago as the King James translation, and it was a very antiquated form of Russian and uh, not well translated, so that whenever they, for example, can you imagine, trying to understand the gospel of justification by faith. If every place that you found the word righteousness, uh, the Russian translation substituted the word pravda, not the m- newspaper, the word for truth. But the problem with God with man is that he's not truthful. and God is truthful. It just changes the, it, it, the whole gospel. It, it, it confuses everything. So you have to understand things like that. You have to understand... Uh, Idioms, some of the great problems of translating certain books in English into Russian come from the fact that our American English is so idiomatic and you use illustrations from American sports, they don't really communicate to a Russian audience, so you have to come up with uh, different illustrations. So that they can understand what is going on, now you may find somebody in Moscow or Kiev or some place like that that has some uh, faint familiarity with American baseball or football. But if you go into some small town like Dnipropetrovsk, they 're not going to have a clue what American baseball is, so you have to be very careful how you uh, communicate these things. you have to know your audience, know what some of these issues are, so that you c- so that and and develop translators that understand enough of the uh, good theology so that they can help make the right, accurate, orthodox translations. So that's what we're, we're challenged with. It's more extreme when you're talking about taking the gospel to another culture like that. But let me tell you, the guy who lives next door to you or down the street from you, who immigrated from wherever in this country, uh, or wherever in this world has just about as foreign a concept of reality as somebody who's from the heart of the former Soviet Union or uh, deep in Afghanistan or deep in China or somewhere else. And so we have to study that person so that we can be a better communicator. Now, we know that God the Holy Spirit is the ultimate one who works, But if you're speaking gibberish, the Holy Spirit doesn't convert it into intelligible discourse. And if if you don't know how what you're saying is being heard by the person you're talking to, then you you might, might as well be talking gibberish. So it's really good, I find, to ask people questions. Find out what they think, what they're hearing, so that you can be a more clear communicator. In the Greek culture, Paul clearly understood that they had a lot of gods. But what they meant by the word T-H-E-O-S, theos, or theoi for the plural of gods, wasn't what he meant when he used the word God. And so that had to be cleared up. And they had an understanding of reality that is expressed by this chart, And if I can remember how to do this correctly, I will enlarge it for you. Well, somehow that leaped to... That's not what I have on my screen. Neither is that. Okay, let's get out of all of this. Go back to... Let me get it. Well, that's not getting there. So we will. Uh, that didn't work real well. How come it worked at home? I don't know. Okay, we will. Okay, that now I think I got it. I think I know what I did wrong too. takes a second to get this uh, pulled up again. Okay. Uh, while that's pulling up, I'll explain it. That's the chain of being. This was, this was really articulated by Aristotle in a very sophisticated way, but he wasn't the one who originated this. He just simply put it in a more uh, academic and more uh, scholarly sort of way. Now I'm going to try this one more time and see if, if I, no. if I click there and do this, ah, yeah, that worked. I love it when a plan comes together. Okay, here we can see a little blow up of the uh, slide. At the top of this line, you have God. At the bottom, you have the smallest molecule. Everything is on the same slide or scale of being. It's just that amoebas have less being or essence than man does. Man has less being or essence than angels do. And there are, uh, and then God is just further up the scale so that God is just man blown up much, much larger. But he's still not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who's infinite in his knowledge, infinite spatially in terms of omnipresence, infinite in his power, infinite in knowledge, righteousness, all of these other things. So for them, as you see from your any knowledge you might have of of, um, of Greek mythology, is that their gods Zeus, Hermes, Athena, any of these gods or goddesses were just human beings in a much larger scale, but they had all the flaws and failures of, of human beings. They're still finite. Yet what we see in Scripture is the God of the Bible isn't just a man writ large he is completely and totally distinct uh from uh creation, so this is the the scale of being, and today we have the same thing operating with your most of your next door neighbors and with those who are teaching your kids at uh school et etc and that is that they believe in evolution. Darwinistic evolution has the same scale of being. So uh, it's more sophisticated. Now the arguments for it are based on uh, science and physics and all sorts of uh, uh, detailed scientific, uh, based on the current scientific religious system. But it's all religious because it's substituting the creation for, uh, for the creator. Here's another chart that I developed, and that is using a triangle. That at the top you have God, and then angelic beings, human beings, animals, vegetation, rocks, dirt, water. The gray triangle is simply existence itself. So some of these, the lower you are down the scale, the less you participate in existence, and the higher you are at the scale, the more... Uh, qualitative your existence, but you're sti- it's still derivative existence. What l- lasts for eternity is the universe, is matter or fire or water or air or some element such as that. Uh, we'll skip that slide. So this is the idea. Now, in Christianity, we have a personal infinite God. Personal because God is a person. We can communicate to him. He has attributes of personality. He exists in a trinity. So there's a triune personality, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And throughout all of eternity, they have loved one another. The Father has loved the Son and the Spirit. The Spirit has loved the Father and the Son. And so love is eternal because there is a society, a social structure, maybe you never thought about it that way, a social structure within within the Godhead. So social interaction is eternal. And that social interaction takes place by communication. So that means there's eternal communication, which means there's eternal language. And the Father's communicated with the Son for all of eternity and the Son and the Father with the Holy Spirit for all of eternity so that language isn't ultimately something that functioned within the creation. It's something that is eternal within the Godhead, and what we think of as language is merely a, a derivative of what exists in the personality of and the personhood of God. And so that that gives an ultimate anchor of stability to language so that when God speaks to Adam those words have certainty and meanings that are defined and there are boundaries, unbreakable boundaries to those words so that they can't slip over into something else and so that language can have meaning from one generation to the next. That has analogies to the creation and the kinds. But in the Scripture, the God who is personal and infinite is completely separate and distinct from that which he creates, which is the finite universe. And within the creation, there are angels, human beings, animals, vegetation, matter, and energy. All of this is what it is because it came into existence out of nothing by God. He determined and defined what it is, It is what it is because God says that's what it is. So he he determines reality. In contrast, so we're going to show the opposite view here. This is all paganism ultimately breaks down to this. Now, paganism is a technical term. Somebody asked me this recently recently. Paganism, you just look it up and take the Webster's uh, Dictionary or Oxford English Dictionary definition. Paganism refers to all thought that has not been influenced by the Bible, Old Testament uh, or New Testament. So that means that in some sense, Islam is not pagan. Judaism is not pagan. Christianity is not pagan. So pagan has a technical term and refers to any system of thought that has no biblical basis whatsoever. In non-biblical thought, you always have an infinite impersonal universe, and maybe that infinite impersonal universe uh, is just matter, and it's existed forever, whether it's in an extremely small, tight, compact, high mass Uh, cube or something which then explodes in the Big Bang or whatever it is. There is this infinite impersonal universe so that ultimately all that you have out there is something that is impersonal, which doesn't explain where personality, personhood comes from. And then within the realm of existence or being, you have God, angels, human beings, animals, and nature. There's another way of looking at this, and that's uh, what you have in most Eastern religions. And so this is the uh, uh, yin-yang symbol. And on the left, you uh, you have the white with a black dot in it. And on the other side, you have the black with the white dot. But it's all enclosed within one circle, which is monism. Uh, the Beatles had a song, I am you, you are me, he is she, we are one. It's pure Eastern uh, monism. There was a scene in uh, uh, Star Wars early on when uh, uh, Luke is battling uh, Darth Vader. And uh, he, I think it's the second one in the series. And he pulls out his lightsaber and slays him. And when he opens the visor on Darth Vader's helmet, he sees himself. I am you, you are me, he is she, we are one. Pure monism. And all Eastern thought ultimately breaks down to this. What was in, I had a good friend that's a black preacher. One day I was looking at him. This guy was so biblical. I looked down he had on a pair of cufflinks with this on. I said, how come you have a Buddhist symbol on your cufflinks? That really shook him up. What? He had no idea what this was. So... That's, that is what all paganism breaks down. And ultimately, that's what you had in your, in your Greek philosophical systems is they broke down to this kind of a view of all is one. Pantheism is one form of that. That really related more to uh, Stoicism than it did Epicureanism. Now, in Greek culture had been dominated by the value of philosophy and intellectual pursuit of sophos, of wisdom, and wisdom was viewed not as the Hebrews viewed wisdom, which is something intensely practical. It was a skill at living. It, uh, when uh, uh, Holyab and, and uh, uh, was given the the skill, the chokhmah, to create all of the works of the tabernacle, all of the woodworking, the goldsmithing, the metalworking, the silversmithing, all of those things were all said came to him because the Holy Spirit gave him chokhmah gave him wisdom, skill. So wisdom in the Bible is not abstract reasoning. Wisdom in the Bible is the ability to take what God has revealed to us and develop something that is uh, aesthetically beautiful and attractive and shows skill as a result of what we have learned from God. But in the Greek culture, of course, you have the pre-Socratics, who uh, were focused on trying to find out whether ultimate reality was one or many. You had various debates there. And then you come to Socrates and then the big two who are um, Aristotle and, and Plato. This very famous painting by Raphael. And in the middle, the focal point of the painting is on those two men at the middle. And you can't see them in a lot of detail there, but you can in this slide. And on the right, on your left, rather, uh, you have Plato, the bald man with the beard. And on the right, you have the younger man, uh, Aristotle, excuse me. If you notice, Plato is pointing with his finger up, indicating that ultimate reality is in the realm of the ideals, And you have uh, Aristotle pointing out straight ahead and pointing down. Ultimate reality is an experience in the things and the details of sense experience. Plato lived between in the uh, uh, throughout most of the fifth fifth century. His dates run from like uh, four twenty or said to be like four twenty seven sometime three forty seven. I may have those. uh, Yeah, that, that would be about right about 50, 60 years. For him, ultimate reality is the ideals, the ideas, uh, sometimes referred to as forms, absolutes, universals, the other, the absolute good, the sumum bonum. That's up, that's, we don't know where that exists, but if I say the word chair and you say the word chair, we all have some sort of ideal um, in our mind of what makes something a chair as opposed to a bed. I so say the word bed, you have an image in your mind of a bed. That's, that's sort of this ideal. So uh, Plato is trying to explain that, and that's where ultimate reality is, not down in the details of matter, the individual things, bodies. Everything down there is in a cha- state of uh, flux or change. Everything up in the realm of ideas is being itself. So for him, ideas, that's why uh, you have uh, idealism is rooted in Plato, uh, this is being itself. So he emphasizes uh, being or immutability more than uh, Aristotle does. And for Plato, it's out of uh, its perfect fullness. It, nece- it necessarily creates all possible things with all possible transitions. That it comes from impersonal, uh, ultimate reality. And then you have Aristotle, and Aristotle believes that uh, everything comes from experience. And so he started at the bottom and works his way up. That's where you get his arguments for uh, the existence of the unmoved mover or the uncaused cause, which are then taken over by later medieval uh, uh, theologians like uh, Thomas Aquinas and others. And they try to shape these into an argument for the Christian God. The trouble is, if you're starting within creation, you can't get outside, you can't jump the border. You know, there's no uh, wetback swimming across the border from, that's not very politically correct, is it? But you all are Texans and know what I mean. You can't swim the border and get from creation to the infinite creator. Uh, So all they get is a big something that's a blown up man. And so this is a problem uh, with Aristotle. He starts with experience, but he can't ever get to ultimate ultimate reality. He said, The universe resembles a large and well-regulated family which all the officers and servants and even the domestic animals are subservient to each other in a proper subordination. Each enjoys the privileges and prerequisites peculiar to his place and at the same time contributes by that just subordination to the magnificence and happiness of the whole. So everything from God to the amoeba is part of that whole. It's just Darwinism in a uh, pre-science framework. So this is the mentality that that governs the pagan Greek mind. And so now Paul, we come to Acts chapter 17, Paul is coming to uh, Athens and he's going to present the gospel to people who think like this. And he, being the extremely well-educated man that he was, understands very much how they think. He's read all the significant pagan uh, philosophers and writers, so he understands all of their thought, and he is now coming to Athens in order to communicate uh, communicate to them now, as he does, he were told go to acts seventeen sixteen now, while Paul waited for them, he had sent uh, T- Silas and Timothy back to uh, Uh, Berea in order to communicate uh, the gospel they left Silas and Timothy there and to come to him afterward and he went on to Athens and we're told in verse 16 now while Paul waited for them at Athens his spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city was given over to idols there now in the foreground, I think that's a temple to Jupiter, and then you can see another ancient building behind it. And there'll be some other pictures that I put up here with some of the other slides, and you'll notice mo- all of these are around the base of the... Uh, of the, of the um, uh, uh, yeah, the Acropolis, thank you. Of the Acropolis and the uh, temple to Athena there. And everywhere you look, there is another temple... They're everywhere. I mean, it's like somebody scattered them like you scatter salt on your potatoes. I mean, they're just everywhere. And as Paul walked around, all he could see was one temple to one god or goddess after another one. And because he's so committed to the truth, he had a little righteous indignation with all of this that that he could see. The city was full of idols, completely full of idols. And it violated the, uh, here's a new word for you, I ran across it today, I couldn't avoid teaching you tonight, an iconic commandment, the second commandment of the Old Testament. Iconic is the word icon for an image, An iconic is, means the opposite, not having an icon. So it's spelled A-N-I-C-O-N-I-C, so you get a new word for, that's your new vocabulary word for this week. So he is, sees this city full of idols, which conflicts, of course, directly with the second commandment of the of the Decalogue. So in Acts seventeen seventeen, he follows his normal methodology to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. And so we're told he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews. He's having conversations. He's not going in for a drive-by evangelism and shoot him with his gospel gun. He is going to have conversations with them, explaining the scriptures, uh, dialoguing, going back and forth, explaining and showing from the Old Testament how Jesus of Nazareth fulfills the prophecies of the Old Testament and is the Messiah, who, in fulfillment of prophecy, died on the cross for our sins, was buried and on the third day uh, was raised from the dead. He's reasoning in the synagogue with two groups, the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. Now, what we learned already from our study in Acts is the approach of Peter and Paul is when they're talking to those who have knowledge of the Old Testament, they start with Genesis 12 with the call of Abraham and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob rather than in Genesis 1. But when he talks to a purely pagan audience, then he shifts his starting point. So he's reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and God-fearing Gentiles and also in the marketplace, that is the agora, uh, which is the area in the foreground. You see the Acropolis back in the back with the uh, uh, temple to Athena on top, and Mars Hill is off to the left of the Acropolis. We'll see that up a little closer uh, in another picture. But this area in the foreground was the area of the ancient uh, ancient Acropolis. But as he was talking, we'll see from um, this next verse in verse 18, that what he was teaching focused on the resurrection, not In an autonomous sense, but remember, as he talks to a Jewish audience with the Old Testament and to a God fearing Gentile audience, he's explaining the revelation in context, like what I went over on Sunday morning is how the resurrection was used in gospel presentation. It's not just assumed that people would know this, but so that unbelief doesn't uh, do an envelopment on. What we're teaching as believers, we need to start with God who is the God who gives life and who controls life, who brings life out of death, so that when we get to explaining the resurrection, there's an aha moment that this is talking about a God who is solving the sin problem. But he's got some other people now in his audience, the Epicureans and the Stoics. These are philosophers, and they're conversing with him. Again, it's a dialogue. He's not just coming by and saying, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Good, I got the gospel out for him. He is having conversations and, to some degree, confrontations with the Stoics and the Epicureans. Now, uh, who are these people? The Stoicism, Stoics were basically the pantheistic monists of their day. Everything came from the one element of fire And everything ultimately will return into one cosmic conflagration, and then it starts all over again. I mean, these are the people who—I mean, Greek thought: history repeats itself over and over and over again, just one cycle after another. Only Christianity is the only, only religion or if you would philosophy or way of thinking that has a linear view of history where it begins at one point and is resolved at another point now you have some other systems that have come along since christianity marxism being one of them who have stolen the idea of a linear history and a teleology or a purpose in history from christianity but when you're talking with a Marxist, you have to expose that and slap their wrist because they don't have a right to it. They stole it from Christianity on the basis of Marxism. There's no starting point or end point. You can't get there with their assumptions. But uh, st- And Stoicism is the same. It just has a cyclical view of history. The Epicureans, on the other hand, were the atheist materialists of the day. So you have two really different people, but they're both part of the paganism of of Rome. They both believe in human autonomy. So you got the whites with the black dot and the blacks with the white dot. But they're all within the same basic uh, system. Lucretius was a, uh, in the nature of the universe, is an Epicurean. And so I have a couple of quotes from him to expose a little bit about what they believed. In the nature of the universe, he wrote, certainly the atoms did not post themselves purposefully in due order by an act of intelligence, nor did they stipulate what movements each should perform. As they have been rushing everlastingly throughout all space in their myriads, undergoing myriad changes, under the disturbing impact of collisions, they have experienced every variety of movement and conjunction till they have fallen into the particular pattern by which this world of ours is constituted. Does that sound familiar? I mean, this is like 5th century B.C. It's just time plus chance equals order. He says, this world has persisted many a long year, having once been set going in the appropriate motions. But how did it get set going? He doesn't explain that. Uh, From these, everything else follows. He goes on to say, nature is free and uncontrolled by proud masters and runs the universe by herself without the aid of God's. Pure materialism. And then he says, I've taught you that things cannot be created out of nothing nor once born be summoned back to nothing. All right, so this, these are the folks that are coming out to to uh, talk to Paul. He has the faculty from Yale and Harvard Divinity School. They're trust me, they're worse than the guys over in the science department coming out. He has the, them too coming out to discuss with him what he's talking about, and they say to him. Uh, some are saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be pro- a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So he, he doesn't start off with a, he's been talking, number one, he's been talking to groups that have an Old Testament background. So he's talking about Jesus and the resurrection because they have a frame of reference to understand that. But when the pagans come and they hear that, it's just meaningless just meaningless gibberish and uh, and all they can do is try to wrap their pagan thought around this idea and it doesn't have any coherence for them because it is assuming a totally different reality and Paul's not going to compromise with them. Let me just kind of go through a couple of slides to give you the overview of what happens here and then I'll come back and, and uh, look at a couple of details. In verse 19, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. That means Mars Hill. Ares is the Greek for, for uh, Mars, the god of war. Mars is the Latin uh, Roman name, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. See, this is Mars Hill there in the um, uh, background. It's extremely slippery on top. It's So many people have crawled up there and crawled all over it that it's just... You know, polished like a glass doorknob, and uh, if the wind blows just a little bit, you can slip and fall down and uh, imitate Humpty Dumpty. So, uh, but this is where they would come, and they would have this little class in the shade the afternoon, and have this uh, these intellectual gymnastics. So they say to him, "May we know what this new teaching is, what you're proclaiming for you? We are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. It's just an intellectual curiosity. And here's for those of you who don't recognize Dr. Ice, that's Tommy standing there giving a little sermon uh, sermon sermonette on the discourse at Mars Hill at Mars Hill. And just off to the right, there's actually a carved plaque in the uh, in the stone with the entire uh, passage of what Paul says on it. Verse 21 tells us, Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there uh, used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. They're not looking for truth. They just want to have their ears stimulated with something new. They're focused on intellectual stimulation, not really finding, uh, finding truth. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. See, that's Romans 1, 18 and 19. He's not not accounting the fact that, oh, you're materialist atheists, so uh, you're not religious. No, he says you are religious, no matter what your view is. You're religious. He understands they already know that God exists. I observe that you're very religious in all respects, for while I was passing through... Uh, And examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, uh, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven, does not dwell in a temple made with hands, nor is he served with human hands as though he uh, needed anything, since he himself gives to all people uh, life and breath and all things." So let's just kind of go through this. I want to point out a few things that Paul does in addressing uh, this audience. Let me back up to verse 18. First couple of things I'm going to point out have to do with uh, Paul defines theology proper. There's a methodology. The first thing he's going to do is he's going to make sure that the, the content of the word God is clear. He's not going to let them come up with their own ideas or read that into what he is saying. Then he's going to redefine who man is. Before he ever gets to, to anything close to the gospel, he wants to make sure they know who God is and who man is. They're not going to like either one. And uh, what we read here in verse 18, they've heard him and they say, "What is this idol babbler wish to say. Now, that word that's translated idle babbler is the Greek word sperma logos, sperma from seed, the word for seed, where we get our, our word transliteration for our word sperm, and logos for word or message or study. This was actually a pejorative term, on a, uh, an idiom that was used to describe someone who lacked any intellectual sophistication and it was just someone who picked up little seeds or scraps of information here and there, and then tried to uh, act as if they knew something. We would call it a pseudo intellectual. This is this is really an ideological scrapmonger or scavenger of ideas. So they're very insulting towards uh, the Apostle Paul. But there, at, in the agora, at, he is communicating the gospel to all of these people and. He is clearly proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God in power, uh, who God designated in power by his resurrection from the dead. So the resurrection is clearly a st- strong element of his gospel presentation. Another thing he re- what Paul recognizes here is that, that they are going to be antagonistic to him from the very beginning. They had a prior intellectual commitment in their suppression of truth and unrighteousness. They have a prior commitment that no God like Paul proclaims could exist and something like the resurrection couldn't exist. Don't confuse me with facts. My mind's already made up. So, but that doesn't stop Paul. He knows that they have this, this uh, predetermined, preset commitment but he's going to explain things anyway because God, the Holy Spirit, works with his word. And there are some. He doesn't have as many respond to the gospel in Athens as he has in other places. But at the end of the episode, we learn that there were a number who did respond to the gospel. So he's not going to say, well, they're just mired in their paganism. So this, I don't want to stir up a, a lot of argument or unpleasantness, so I'll just go on down the road. He's going to make sure he uh, makes the gospel very clear. Uh, he knows that whatever it is that they say, it's all smoke and mirrors because every one of them, every one of those Murray Madeleine O'Hare's and every one of those Christopher Hitchens and every one of those Charles Darwin's know in their heart of hearts that God exists and that God is who Paul says he is and that they are what God says they are. They just don't like it, and they don't want to admit it. So Paul, Paul knows, as we know, when we're communicating to somebody about the truth of the Scripture, that they know we're right. They don't want to admit it, but we have an, an, we have a secret agent that has already put the truth in their soul and who is exposing it, and that's the Holy Spirit. So we can just relax and just do the best that we can. But before Paul gets to the details, he has to expose, he's going to expose the errors because he doesn't want them to just envelop his ideas within their system. And so he's going to start and redefine um, who God is. So he will begin and... uh, explaining the god of the old testament the hebrew scriptures and the god of the bible he is going to authoritatively declare his reality to these philosophers he's not going to try to convince them he if if I, I, one day i had this flash of brilliant flash of the obvious Paul knew Aristotle. It's obvious from some of the things he says. He knew Aristotle. He knew Plato. He played off of some of their verbiage. He knew the philosophy of the Greeks. If Paul thought that Aristotle's five ways, arguments for the existence of God carried any weight, he would have used them. But that's not what he does. He assumes and authoritatively proclaims that God exists. He talks about he doesn't give any ground on that. So he says, while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Now, it's real easy to read this and think that Paul is saying that this altar to an unknown God is an altar to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's not what he's saying. The fact that they have, this is just another God in their pantheon. He's not doing, he's not pulling a Muhammad. What I mean by that is there were 360 deities in the Arab in the pantheon, one of whom was Allah, which is just a generic term for God. And Allah had three or four uh, female goddesses as consorts. And when Muhammad came along, he just dumped the other 359 gods and goddesses and kept one. And he has a generic term uh, name of Allah. And so he's not to be identified with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and and Jacob just because he has, Allah is a cognate of Elohim and that's equivalent to the generic term G-O-D in English which is not the name of God, it's just a term for a deity. Uh, The name of God is Yahweh as God reveals it in the Old Testament. That's his proper name. So Paul isn't saying, okay, one of your 360 gods is the God I'm going to tell you about. That's not Paul. But what Paul is doing is he he is using this to expose the fact that every human being has the knowledge of God in his soul. And so he just points this out. You have limited knowledge. He's challenging their basic epistemology. You don't know everything. So you wanted to throw uh, a variable in here. This is the X God or the Y God. It's the variable. Just in case you missed one, you threw one in here for good measure. But I'm going to tell you about a God you don't know, uh, and I'm going to define him for you. And so he begins to define this God, and he declares that the God he is communicating to them about is the creator god of the universe. he doesn't start with genesis 3 he goes all the way back to genesis 1 he says he's going to tell them about the god who made the world and all things in it he's emphasizing this creator creation distinction which is completely contrary to their monistic chain of being so the first thing out of his mouth is going to rattle their cage See, that's not how to win friends and influence people in your evangelism methodology. He says, I'm going to tell you about the God who made the world and all things, and he's starting with creation. Oh, my, my, my. We have so many people today who tell us creation is a side issue. Creation isn't important. Uh, We have lots of even evangelicals who think that it's okay to have some form of evolution taking place, some form of theistic evolution, and yet that's not, Paul says, that's a different God. That's not the God of Genesis 1. The God of Genesis 1, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Jesus is the God who created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them in six literal 24-hour days. If he didn't, then the whole Sabbath commandment of the Mosaic law is meaningless. Because the the reason you work six days and rest on the seventh is because that's what God did. But if God worked for six geologic ages and then rested on the seventh, then we don't have to rest for a long time. We're still in the first geologic age. We've got five more to go before we have to rest. So he starts off with creation, the God who made the world and all things in it. Since he is the Lord, he's emphasizing authority here. Uh, The word here, kurios, emphasizes the authority of God. He is the authority of heaven and earth. That incorporates pretty much all creation. can't think of anything that's not incorporated in heaven or on the earth. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not dwell in temples with hands. And as you could look around from Mars Hill, you can count a dozen or more temples to different gods. Nor he says is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Now that's a little slap in the face to the uh, to the Epicureans because they think that uh, man, uh, their idea of a of a of a god was, uh, I believe it was the Epicureans, was that he uh, existed in order to to uh, be served. And so he says, no, this god doesn't exist to be served by human hands. He's independent of his creation because he is the one who gives to all people life and breath and things now that is also going to be a that says something about who man is and that flies in the face of greek ethnic pride they were racist to the core I mean, real race not like you hear people playing the race card today who don't understand what racism is, but people who were real race, they figured if you weren't Greek, you were, well, because you were lower down the chain of being than anybody else. And so what what is Paul saying here? He's saying the same thing that is said in the Old Testament. He's quoting parts of it, but he's not, he's summarizing it. Passages like Isaiah 42, verse 5, thus says, God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who work on it. So he's not compromising on his view of God. He's not going to say, well, let me get you to, you know, a somewhat acceptable view of God and then I'll uh, do a little bait and switch and get you into the gospel somehow uh, by hook or crook. Uh, that's not what he's doing here. So he stands firm on that, and he recognizes also that, as I pointed out, that God requires nothing from those whom he has uh, created. I misspoke a minute ago about the Epicureans. Actually, this goes back to uh, uh, Plato's uh, Euthyph- Euthyphro, which in Plato there is this idea of the gods need the worship of the, of the people. But what we have in Scripture in the Old Testament is the autonomy of God, Psalm 50, verses 9 through 12. I will not take a bull from your house, no, nor goats out of your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine in all of its fullness. God is in control of everything, So Paul is emphasizing just who this God is, that he is the creator of everything. So we'll stop there. We've covered God. Next time we'll come back and see how he is going to define man as he addresses uh, the Athenians. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to uh, study these things, to think about how Paul uh, communicates and confronts and converses with the pagans in Athens so that we can gain ideas and principles and encouragement as we uh, attempt to do the same thing with those around us. Father, we pray that you would give us clarity of thought and the courage and confidence to faithfully proclaim the truth of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.